the National Archives podcast series, Fashion or Ration, Hartnell, Amy's and Dressing for the Blitz, presented by Robert Doust. Welcome, everyone. The history of British fashion in the early and mid-20th century was shaped by two men, Norman Hartnell and Hardy Amy's. They were uniquely British individualists and innovators who knew an opportunity when they saw it and capitalized on it. Their designs captured the imagination of the British public, and their designs for the two queens, Elizabeth, show a mastery of state costume design. They have influenced successive designers around the world, either by example or as a point of rebellion. This talk will attempt to trace their lives and careers, and with the help of some fascinating records from the National Archives, show what clothes rationing in the Second World War was like and how these two men engaged in the war effort. Norman Hartnell was born on the 12th of June, 1901, to an upwardly mobile family in Streatham. His parents were then publicans and the owners of the Crown and Scepter, prophetically named considering Hartnell's later career. He was educated at Mill Hill School and became an undergraduate of Magdalen College, Cambridge, reading modern languages. But he was more interested in designing production for the Cambridge Footlights, where he gained fame He left Cambridge without a degree, but was noticed by the London press as an innovative designer when a Footlights production transferred to London. In the early 1920s, London, Hartnell continued looking for theatrical work. He even approached department store magnate Gordon Selfridge for design work. Selfridge told him to go away and learn to draw. (laughs) Undeterred, he set up on his own with capital of £300. That's about 13000 in today's money. It's important to remember that in the aftermath of the Great War, British people, like those in other countries, were seeking new horizons and ideas. For the first time, the U.S. came to be viewed as a vibrant cultural alternative to the staid and class-ridden Britain. Hollywood and silent screen divas such as Gloria Swanson, Barbara Lamar, and the nascent Greta Garbo with their lavish clothes and lifestyles, offered not only escapism to British women, but objects for imitation. Department stores would begin to carry knockoffs of sporty American-style clothes in the 20s, whose direct influence was the Hollywood film. It was in this climate that Hartnell's theatricality and fantasy made his clothes an immediate success. Society ladies, such as future steamy romance novelist Barbara Cartland... Mrs. Brian Guinness, more famously known today as Lady Mosley, Diana Mitford, and Hollywood film star Merle Oberon were among his clients. His designs matched perfectly the post-war mood of frivolity, theatricality, and fantasy. And though he ended up having to move to Paris in order for his designs and his business to be taken seriously, by 1930 he was on top of his game. Hartnell's greatest pre-World War II achievement was helping to create a unique style for Queen Elizabeth, mother of the present queen. On becoming queen, she and King George wanted very much for her clothes to embody classic ideas of royalty, womanhood, and dignity for her people. Queen Elizabeth eschewed the severe Paris chic of her sister-in-law, the Duchess of Windsor, in favor of a softer, more ladylike line. Hartnell researched the royal collection of paintings, especially those of Winterhalter, and created silhouettes that made her appear regal, 
but somehow accessible. The hats Hartnell used to frame and reveal the Queen's face. Even when reviewing a woman's auxiliary, his square-shoulder designs and arching hats would give her a military aspect while retaining her signature motherliness. In 1909, almost a decade after Hartnell, Hardy Amis was born in Maida Vale to a civil servant father and a saleswoman mother who worked for a clothier to the royal courts. He was educated at Brentwood School, Essex, leaving in 1927. His father wanted him to go up to Cambridge, but instead he made for Antibes, where he taught English. He traveled throughout Europe, spending three years in France and then Bendorf, Germany, learning the languages. On return to England in 1930, Amy secured a trainee position with the weighing machine manufacturer Avery Limited in Birmingham. It was, however, in 1934, at the age of 25, without any formal training, that he became managing designer for the fashion house La Chasse of London. Through raw talent, drive, and expert timing, Amy's made La Chasse one of the most sought-after names for any smart shop on both sides of the Atlantic. And by 1940, he himself was considered one of London's finest couturiers. His designs managed miraculously to marry English restraint with Gallic verve, something notably lacking in his contemporaries. Like Hartnell in the 1920s, he had his finger on the pulse of fashion and knew instinctively what his clientele was looking for. Unlike his contemporary Chanel, or say the futuristic 1960s designer Courage, his talent was not for invention, but for innovation. Amy's knew that the epitome of British fashion was the tailored suit, especially in tweed. Hardy Amy's said, London clothes had to be at home in the country, and to balance this, country clothes had to look happy in London. In this way, the tailored suit was an essential part of the smart woman's wardrobe. The designers, like Amy's, who would make the greatest successes in British fashion, as opposed to French, understood this implicitly. After the First World War, Britain had been ready to take on France and the U.S. in the fashion market. This was facilitated for the first time by a burgeoning middle class who had the money to spend on clothes, though not the means to shop abroad or visit couturiers. By the 1930s, even the working class woman wanted to look good and dress well, and for the first time was able to emulate their more solvent peers by means of a growing mass-market fashion industry. In 1935, Amy's and some of the industry's other young Turks formed the fashion group of Great Britain. The group knew they couldn't compete with Paris, but endeavored to convince Americans that London had a separate identity and could produce clothes to the highest standard in the world, especially in tailoring. In this, they succeeded to a degree. The group made a great PR coup by broadcasting in 1938 London fashion shows from Radio Olympia and by producing a magazine, The Quarterly, to keep British fashion's name alive in the face of new competition from American designers exploiting the low tariffs on American imports. The British fashion industry finally seemed to be coming into its own, but it wasn't to last. Britain entered the war in 1939, throwing everything into chaos. At the start of the war, certain commodities began to be rationed, but it wasn't until June 1941, a full year after food rationing had begun, that clothing, cloth, and footwear began to be rationed. It came as a shock and wasn't well received. Few expected it to last long. 
its effects were swift and far-reaching and changed, at least for the duration of the war, the way women dressed. Clothing was rationed on a points system in the form of coupons. Clothing rationing points could be used for wool, cotton, and household textiles. People had extra points for work clothes, such as overalls or factory work. No points were required for second-hand clothing or fur coats, but their prices were fixed. <laughs> to help with the general confusion, the clothing coupon quiz was produced, filled with schoolmasterly advice such as, there is enough if we all share and share alike, and rationing is the way to get your fair shares. It detailed how the scheme would work and how many coupons were required for each item. In the first year, each adult person was allotted 66 coupons. Five coupons could be used towards a blouse, five for a pair of boots, seven for a dress, and 14 for a coat. If you tally that up, these four items would make up half of the entire year's allowance of coupons for one person. Coupons did not guarantee availability, nor could they be used as payment. Initially, the clothing allowance was for approximately one new outfit per year. As the war progressed, the points were reduced to an extent that the purchase of a coat constituted almost an entire year's clothing allowance. In 1941, there were 66 points for clothing per year. In 1942, it was cut to 48, in 1943 to 36, and in 1945 to 24. Non-rationed items included boiler suits, workmen's overalls, hats and caps, sewing thread, boot and shoelaces, ribbons, and other fabrics less than three inches in width, lace, elastic, sanitary towels, braces, suspenders, garters, clogs, and blackout dyed cloth. Headgear, other than that made from scarves or incorporating handkerchiefs, was also exempt. The government wanted people to retain and wear their old clothes for as long as possible and cut back on the demand for new clothes that was crippling the war effort. The Board of Trade, therefore, prepared a series of make-do-and-mend booklets and posters to get women to maintain their existing wardrobes for as long as possible. Mrs. So-and-so was the make-do mascot, and her image was to be seen on posters and in magazines all over in and of the time. How-to booklets began to proliferate with headings such as Can you patch? Wears and tears to mend a straight tear, a triangular tear, or a thin place at the elbow. And smocking is not difficult. <laughs> The severe shortage of leather meant that other thick-soled materials such as cork were used. The wedge sole was clumpy but sturdy, and wearers could walk for miles as the wedge stopped the hard road, making feet sore. They also lasted a long time and needed minimal repair. In terms of accessories, as the supply of stockings dwindled and vanished during the war, the fashionable girl painted her legs with gravy browning or cold cocoa to simulate the stockinged look. Sadly, neither of these were water or stain-proof. <laughs> Makeup substitutes included soot, charcoal, and until it became scarce, boot polish for eyeshadow. 
Old lipstick ends were melted down and poured into a container to re-solidify. The average woman is said to have owned two lipsticks for the entire war. When the lipstick ran out, solid rouge was used. Lard was used in small amounts as makeup remover. And for hair-setting lotion, a sugar-water mixture was used as a substitute. Even with the coupons, some women and families were simply too poor to buy any new clothes at all. To some, having the coupons made no difference as there was no money to pay for the goods. Inevitably, a black market arose in coupons and vast numbers of books, about 700,000, became lost or stolen in the early part of the scheme until the government issued new rules which forbade the detaching of coupons. New rules meant coupons had to be stamped in the book and detached only at point of sale. The black market flourished, however, most prominently due to the rule that second-hand items were exempt from rationing, if deemed genuine. This rule was an acknowledgement by the government that working classes bought their staple clothing items at jumble sales and market stalls, but it misfired as it made local markets a mecca for spivs and a clearinghouse for black market goods looted from bombed shops, warehouses, and homes. Another cheat on the scheme were the clothing clubs, where clothes were bought on the never-never, that is, the buyer never owned the clothes because they were worn out before they were paid for, rented, as it were, from a tallyman who called at the door collecting two shillings a week for them. Innovation was a keynote in wartime clothes rationing. Siren suits were the original jumpsuit and were a huge hit, especially at night when sirens called citizens to the air raid shelter for cover. With its quick zippered front, individuals could wear the suit over pajamas, making it ideal for children. The princesses Elizabeth and Margaret both owned siren suits, as did Winston Churchill. The siren suit was practical and warm in drafty situations. Later in the 1960s, it was developed into evening wear in slinky, poochy prints. <laughs> Over the siren suit, some would have donned a kangaroo cloak, a coat so-called because of its roomy kangaroo pockets. The oversized pockets were ideal to stack with essential items when running to an air raid shelter. Queen Elizabeth even took time to have her lady-in-waiting thank a certain Mr. Park at the Board of Trade for making 1,000 ration coupons available for Her Majesty's work parties. To boost morale, the Incorporated Society of London Fashion Designers, or INSOC, led by Hartnell, Amys, and other designers, created 34 smart utility clothing designs. Inksock dresses were officially approved by the Board of Trade and a selection was mass-produced. Finally, they were finished off with the official and now famous Clothing Control 1941, or CC41, logo. Utility designs follow the square-shouldered and short-skirted fashions of the war era while sticking to the strict regulations for minimal cloth usage. Buttons were limited to three, and turn-back cuffs were eliminated. Skirts were some 19 inches from the ground, and that was quite normal. They were often accessorized with turbans and sunglasses, softening the somewhat severe look of the dresses. Even within the utility scheme, there were couture garments for those who could afford them, but they still had to use coupons. The wealthy also had their uniforms tailored at the best tailors rather than wear standard issue. 
Refuse active service because of his age, Hartnell joined the Home Guard and continued to work for the war effort from his couture house at Bruton Street. He was asked by Burkertex, the leading dress manufacturer, if he could design utility dresses for the mass market. Not wanting to compromise his standing with the royal family, he asked the Queen's advice. You have made so many charming things for me, she told him, that if you could do likewise for my countrywomen, I think it would be an excellent thing to do. Hartnell's 1942 utility dresses were produced by the Burkertex factory. Conforming to government restrictions on the amount of fabric used, they still managed to be smart and striking, with clean lines and clever sewing. Hardy Ames took up his wartime post with the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, and was shipped to the continent. His colonel had this to say about him. This officer has done very well on the course. He is far tougher physically than his rather precious appearance would suggest. <laughs> he has displayed great keenness on all subjects and has learnt a good deal. He is always cheerful and ready to take part in any activity. He possesses a keen brain and an abundance of shrewd sense. His only handicap is his precious appearance and manner, and these are tending to decrease. <laughs> Effectively working as head of the SOE in Belgium in 1944, it was alleged in a year 2000 BBC documentary that Amis was a proponent of Operation Rat Week, an initiative to murder Nazi collaborators throughout Europe. Amis, when asked later, had no recollection of it. He also remained active in fashion during the war. The British government allowed couturiers time off of their duties to continue to work in fashion, not just for the utility scheme, but also to create luxury couture to sell abroad for the war effort. In promoting this, Amis did get into hot water with his superiors for sanctioning a Vogue photo shoot in Belgium under his watch. And perhaps apocryphally, for naming his military missions after fashion accessories. <laughs> Anyone for Operation Handbag? <laughs> Austerity measures were in place at war's end, and the public became resentful and impatient with the continued rationing on clothes. People were bitter because new clothes were being produced, but they were exported in an effort to rebuild the British textile and wool economy. The revived Paris fashion industry began to reinvent itself, most notably with Christian Dior's New Look of 1947. And America was developing the simple and classic look that continues to be popular today. The ongoing rationing was leaving Britain behind. On the 15th of March, 1949, almost four years after war's end, clothes rationing in Britain finally came to an end. Post-war, Hartnell's career was as successful as ever. As well as his flourishing fashion house in Bruton Street, Hartnell's two most memorable commissions were for the bridal gown of Princess Elizabeth and six years later, the now Queen Elizabeth's coronation gown. Both dresses offered the escape and fantasy that war-torn Britain was craving. For the royal wedding, Hartnell decorated the Duchesse satin bridal gown with motifs of star lilies and orange blossoms, creating the perfect silhouette for a fairy tale princess. The wedding, like the dress, was a signal that wartime dreariness was finally coming to an end. The coronation gown, while feminine and up to date, had a more important role to fill. 
After presenting eight designs to the Queen, it was the ninth, using her suggestion of motifs from Britain and the Commonwealth, that was finally used. On a cream satin A-line background, using diamante, gold, silver, and copper bullion, Hartnell's workers picked out the English Tudor rose, the Welsh leek, the Scottish thistle, the Irish shamrock, and many motifs from the Commonwealth countries. The dress epitomized the young queen's stake in her realm. It is not only Hartnell's greatest achievement, but a centerpiece in the history of costume. Though Hartnell's fashion house continued to thrive in the 50s, by the 60s it had fallen on hard times. His beloved country retreat, Lovell Dean, had at some point been transferred to the company name, and as the company went under, the bank claimed it as part of its debt. He continued to work, but his existence became peripatetic. In 1979, finally settled into rooms above his fashion house on Bruton Street, the now benighted Sir Norman Hartnell became frail and suffered a fatal heart attack at 78. Hartnell was a private man and never married. Though he was nominally homosexual, he had never publicly acknowledged a lover or long-term partner. It is likely that due to his stature with the royal household and the general hostility to actual or perceived homosexuals in Hartnell's time, he remained quiet on the subject. Unlike Hartnell, who was to see his apogee in the early 50s, Hardy Amis' greatest successes were before him. He founded his own fashion house in 1946 in Savile Row after buying the building at a knockdown price because of bomb damage. His post-war work continued along the same chic lines as before the war, but like his French counterparts, with the most luxurious materials and lavish accessories. And as before, his clothes represent a unique ability to merge English restraint with French chic. Not to be outdone in the royal stakes by his rival Hartnell, Amos received the royal warrant in 1955 and would make royal tour dresses and suits for the Queen. His own crowning achievement would be the silver jubilee gown about which he quipped, It was the gown that launched a thousand biscuit tins. <laughs> Amos also kept an eye on men's fashion and style. Having written a regular column for Esquire magazine on men's fashion, in 1964, Amos published the book The ABC of Men's Fashion. Amos' strict male dress code, with commandants on everything from socks to summer wardrobe, made compelling reading. Here are a few examples. Don't make everything match. To achieve the nonchalance which is absolutely necessary for a man, one article at least must not match. For instance, you can wear a dark blue suit and tie with a pale blue shirt and navy blue socks, but you must then have a patterned silk handkerchief, say in dark red or paisley design of green and brown. Or you could stick a blue handkerchief and just have dark red socks. <laughs> he also said, beware the bow tie wearer. <laughs> By day, often in patterned or spotted foulard, it is usually worn by individualists. <laughs> On less genial characters, it can have an aggressive air and can arouse some kind of resentment at first meeting of a new acquaintance. <laughs> and finally, and I, I think I have to say I agree with him on this one, avoid sandals and shorts. <laughs> Always wear a collar and tie in town, even if it's by the sea after six o'clock. 
Never wear shorts except actually on the beach or on a walking tour. All short sleeve shirts look ghastly. Sandals are hell, except on the beach where you want to take them off, or on a boat, and worn with socks is super hell. <laughs> Amos was always discreet about his homosexuality, probably like Hartnell, very aware of his profile and the adverse effects any revelation might have on his career. But in his old age, Amos became more relaxed, and in speaking of his dressmaking rival, Hartnell, he commented, It's quite simple. He was a silly old queen, and I'm a clever old queen. <laughs> a close friend of Amos described him thus, He appreciated the good things in life and was a connoisseur of good food, fine wines, and firm male flesh. Amy's and his partner, Ken Fleetwood, who was design director at Hardy Amy's Limited, by the way, were together for 43 years until Fleetwood's death in 1996. Amy's died at home in 2003 at the age of 93. In the years between 1920 and 1945, when impeccable manners, ladylike attitudes, as well as reckless abandon, had to make way for Rosie the Riveter, make, do, and mend, austerity measures, Norman Hartnell and Hardy Amis always remained true to their own natures and were egalitarian in their approach to elegance and chic, whether in the designs for a society heiress or a shop assistant. Hartnell is quoted as saying, I despise simplicity. It is the negation of all that is beautiful. But in wartime, even he rose to the challenge that is the greatest for any designer, to achieve beauty through simplicity. Towards the end of his life, Hardy Amis bemoaned the designs of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano as unwearable and more appropriate to the folie bergère. Were these the ravings of a bitter old man, a remnant whose influence had long since passed? Or was he really in mourning for a bygone age of elegance and grace? This is indeed a new age, one no longer belonging to Hartnell and Amis. And for better or worse, each age creates the idols it deserves. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 4th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.